If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Another jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. This is uh, kind of interesting. And I remember uh, seeing this, and I don't think we got to it last week, but uh, I remember very vividly uh, there was an interesting story last week in regard to car thefts. And we certainly know that it's just, it's nuts. In the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, it has just gotten completely out of control. And, you know, it's to the point where um, it's not a big deal anymore. It doesn't seem to surprise anybody. It just, oh, yeah. And... Everything's baked in, the insurance um, costs and, and new cars, bing, back like that, and no one ever gets caught and 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 all that sort of stuff. Meanwhile, all, all we hear is, you know, uh, you know, they get stolen now, and by the end of the day, they're on a shipping container heading for the Middle East. And why we can't intercept that is beyond me, or guns for that matter. So uh, I remember seeing the story last week where police in southern Italy, they raid a shipping container place and they find 250 Canadian registered vehicles being shipped. It was, it was a stopover point to the Middle East. Now, the Italian police can catch it, but for some reason, our police, their hands are tied. So, you know, here is the government um, now, again, coming to money, chasing the problem, which people have been talking about for, for years and years. Car theft has been getting out of control in the GTHA. So now we're coming with money to help all of this. Finally, as again, Italian police uncover the stuff that got out of our border long before it gets to the Middle East, including 250 luxury cars uh, stuffed into containers, stolen from Canada. So uh, it's about time that we're doing what we're doing. Uh, Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc had uh, this to say about money they're giving to the provinces to help them and their police services deal with this growing issue. I'm very happy to announce that the government of Canada will invest $121 million towards crime prevention and enforcement efforts in cities right across Canada, including right here in the York region. All right, and of course, this goes down to uh, Premier Ford. Here's what he had to say. We're tackling auto theft head-on with $51 million over three years to help police identify and dismantle criminal networks behind auto theft rings because people shouldn't have to live in fear of their cars getting stolen in the middle of the night or doors being kicked in at their residence and sometimes at gunpoint. The $121 million investment over five years is going to provide more resources for our police forces. 
It's going to help disrupt the drug supply chains, stop illegal guns from entering our province, curb the level of auto thefts and carjackings, and put more criminals and thugs behind bars where they belong. All right, that's the Premier commenting on all of this. But again, if we go back to what the safety minister said, and all of this stuff to combat, uh, can we play the safety minister's clip one more time, Tom? I'm very happy to announce that the government of Canada will invest $121 million towards crime prevention and enforcement efforts in cities right across Canada, including right here in the York region. All right, that's the safety minister. Uh, This came out yesterday, and I just had to actually go back at yesterday's show sheet and yesterday's notes. Uh, The stat out yesterday, gun crimes up 9% up 9% from 2021. You could have taken out what the safety minister just said and removed the word car thefts and put in handgun bans. $121 million, I'm not sure what they spent on the handgun ban, but clearly gun crime, handguns, up 9% since 2021. Again, I don't own a gun. I don't give a rat's rear end about those that do, because I know there's laws in place uh, that make sure that they they do the right thing. But here we are with cars whipping out the border like it's full of holes, guns coming in like it's full of holes, and we're selling handgun bans. Well, gun crime goes up 9%. And once again, here's the government throwing money at something after you know, closing the barn door after the horse is gone. Not say it's not needed, but how about a little preventative maintenance here? Preventative medicine. We seem to have lost that. Uh, We're too busy reacting as opposed to preparing. All right. uh, I don't know if you know this or not. And, and, you know, I love going up into space, uh, not only because it's fascinating and it's science, eh? Uh, But because sometimes it just gets so wacky down here, you you know, at least it's semi-peaceful up there. And uh, uh, tongue... uh, Firmly planted in cheek like a, an, an eclipse of some sort. Anyway, school boards are concerned about an event that is coming up this spring. Let's bring in Dr. Elena Hyde, Director, Allen Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Here now, Elena, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, doing great. Very looking forward to this uh, upcoming event. Uh, so first, let's start with that. What is the event that's coming up? Well, uh, you mentioned eclipses. So there are two basic kinds of eclipses, lunar and solar. And coming into Ontario is a total solar eclipse, but only for a very small region. So this is going to be very, very exciting. Your chance of actually getting this close to a total solar eclipse um, is very small, and it won't happen again for over 100 years. So um, I think Ontario is rightfully very excited. So what happens during a total solar eclipse? So this is the fun part. Well, this is when the moon moves in front of the sun Mm. and it casts its shadow down onto earth. And what you see standing on earth is the sky turns uh, dark. It actually blocks the light from the sun and you get that cool white uh, sort of outline around the, uh, the moon, which is the sun's corona. And this really neat effect, this is a total solar eclipse, mind you, 
only occurs for that small, small region of Earth that gets to experience totality. Um, and so it's a very uh, striking event. Um, animals have been known to react very, very strongly. <laughs> uh, birds start flying, and it's apparently very spectacular. I have never seen one, so I'm super excited. So how long does this last? The uh, the total eclipse event, and this includes partial eclipse, right. which I must I must emphasize a larger portion of Ontario will be able to experience the partial eclipse if and only if they have eye safety. Um, That part will be about uh, sort of two hours, but the total eclipse for the area, that small, small area, only minutes. So only a few minutes. That gives you just some sort of idea of how fast everything is moving. Very fast, yes. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> what is the concern with school boards, kids? And you talked about looking up. Uh, made reference to that. What What is the concern? Your thoughts on this? Yeah. Do not, under any circumstances, look directly at the sun. Um, this is our big concern as as astronomers, as scientists. Um, you can absolutely damage your eyes. Uh, people have gone blind from looking at the sun. Do not look at the sun with your with just eyeballs. It is not recommended at all. Don't do it. Very dangerous. And I think this is what the schools are trying to avoid uh, from from my understanding is they don't want kids going out and and damaging their eyes. And this is don't look at the sun at any time as well as a during any time. Yeah, anytime at all. Just don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So do you think, uh, and I don't know, I'm I'm asking something that isn't scientific here, so I'm not sure, but do you think, uh, uh, how how do you think we should react to this? I mean, it only happens, you know, uh, once every other lifetime, if you want to look at it that way or or what have you. Um, Should we experience this and just be educated or, um, you know, should we change our behavior? Well, I think it's a great opportunity to uh, to have fun and to consider our perspective in the solar system, if you like. Um, but mostly, it's a wonderful chance to to get to experience event. And as I said, don't look directly at the sun. However, um, there are there are lots of methods of creating images of the sun that don't involve you looking at it. Right. And the most popular, I have to say, is just kitchen pasta strainer. Cast a shadow on the ground and the sun's image will project itself and you'll actually get to see a little disk of the sun projected on the ground. And if it's an eclipse, a partial eclipse, you'll get to see part of that solar disk being obscured. Um, This is what anyone can do. And you're looking at the ground, right? So you're not looking at the sun. and you get to actually experience the partial eclipse, view it safely, and um, you know enjoy in the in the event. When does this happen in Ontario? So for us here in Ontario, we are looking at April eighth, and the partial eclipse begins around uh, two p.m. The maximum is around three. And the end is around four. And this will change slightly depending on your right. exact position. So um, this, as you said, a once in a lifetime thing. What can we learn? What do you, what do you expect to experience, even as an astronomer? 
Well, as an astronomer, um, you know, honestly, in this case, I would just, I would just like to be there. Um, I think a lot of people will be trying to travel into an area that has totality. Mm. Uh, if you are trying such a thing, please be careful of traffic because I'm sure there will be massive traffic. Everybody's there. looking up. Um, yeah. Everyone is trying to go there, but there are Eclipse maps that will show you where in Ontario you can go. So for example, Niagara Falls is going to be very, very popular. Oh, um, and man. everywhere south of around um, probably Hamilton uh, is going to be quite good. And then it's actually the eclipse path along the earth is this tiny, tiny little sort of line that gets drawn as, because as you mentioned, everything's in motion, the earth's spinning, the moon's going around. And so the shadow casting only occurs for a short amount of time and it sort of traces out this little path going from Mexico up through the US into Ontario and then it goes sort of through Ontario and then up uh up the lake a little bit and so you can get a few little spots uh like Kingston and then um little tiny pieces around the lake and then it actually ends off going through uh, um New Brunswick actually and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador I'm already feeling quite small, Elena. Uh, hopefully this puts uh, life in perspective for a lot of people. Uh, it happens April 8th around between 2 and 4, wherever you are uh, in the uh, province and such. And as Elena has reminded us all, don't look up. There's lots of other ways to go about doing this. Fascinating. Yeah. Elena, we'll talk to you again before this all happens. Dr. Elena Hyde, Director, Alan Carswell, Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Thank you, Elena. Thanks. Don't look at the sun, folks. No, don't. Please. I've been meaning to talk to Arl Brown about this, but we always get sidetracked in, in, in other fascinating discussions and such. But we've seen a couple of times uh, prisoner of war uh, swaps back and forth, trade for trade between the Russian and Ukraine officials. What does this mean? How does this fit into this, you know, war that has been just a grinder and been dragging out forever. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, here now. Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. So can, what can you tell us about these prisoner of war swaps? Why is this happening? And is this a, a positive sign? It is a positive sign in uh, a number of ways. Uh, it first of all means that Russia is treating these prisoners as prisoners of war rather than hostages to so not engage in the kind of psychological torture that Hamas is engaging in with the hostages that they have kidnapped. Mm. It also tells us that the Ukrainians have been very successful in capturing large numbers of important Russian uh, officers and soldiers, and uh, the Kremlin wants them back, and this is why they are doing these trades. They are doing it not because it's their preference, but because uh, it's in their interest. So it's a bargaining tool for each side? It is, and uh, uh, it is noteworthy that among the 207 prisoners that Ukraine got back, there were people who had been captured at the Mariupol Iron and Steelworks in uh, uh, Azovstal, and uh, at one point... Uh, Russia was trying to claim that these were just neo-Nazis, uh, but they wound up having to treat them as prisoners of war because they just lost too many captured uh, by the uh, Ukrainians as the Russian offensive has uh, has failed. So it's an indication of some degree of realism on the part of the Kremlin, 
and also on uh, the effectiveness of uh, Ukraine's ability to continue this fight, even though we know that uh, the counteroffensive that uh, uh, was expected uh, in many quarters, especially in the West, uh, would uh, bring uh, back to Ukraine huge territories, has not materialized, at least not yet. Uh, we should take this into the larger perspective of uh, the fact that wars take different kind of turns. And uh, obviously, Ukraine is in a difficult situation, but not a hopeless one. Does this change the discussion? Does it change the tone? Because clearly they're at least talking if they're uh, exchanging prisoners. It is rather limited, so I I don't want to exaggerate the importance of this. This Mm -hmm. is done out of necessity, not uh, as part of a, a larger picture where the Russians realistically want to come to some solution, because it still appears that Vladimir Putin works under the belief that time is on his side, that somehow the West will lose interest, that they are not going to deliver to Ukraine the weapons that they need. There's a very important meeting of the EU tomorrow about uh, funds for Ukraine that have been held up largely because of Hungarian objection. We will have to see what Hungary does and uh, what kind of concessions Viktor Orban will try to extract from the EU. After all, uh, he can look uh, to Turkey, which had been extraordinarily successful in blackmailing NATO into all sorts of concessions for agreeing to uh, finally allow Sweden in. And uh, we still have to have Hungary sign on to it, but Turkey was the big player and they were absolutely ruthless, the Erdogan regime, in squeezing NATO. Um, this, and I'm oversimplifying this, of course, Arl, but this, this reminds me of playing a game and you get to a point where you just go, okay, let's hit reset and start over. Is that what this is? Is this a reset? I, I wouldn't go, uh, that, that, that far. I mean, there are positive elements to it, but, uh, these are relatively small numbers. There are thousands of prisoners right. on, on, on each side. Uh, uh, it is, uh, sort of a straw in the wind that maybe uh, will we'll, uh, sort of be something they can build on. But I think the conflict uh, continues uh, unabated, and uh, so are Russian ambitions. And unless the West comes together and we deliver to Ukraine uh, what they need and they can uh, take the offensive in an effective way in the future, it's very difficult to see uh, Vladimir Putin coming to uh, any kind of... Uh, uh, settlement, uh, not as long as uh, he's persuaded that uh, uh, eventually time uh, will uh, work to his advantage, and he is not particularly concerned about uh, uh, not only the civilian losses in Ukraine, but the losses of uh, Russian soldiers. I mean, whatever small advances that the Russians have made in uh, Luhansk and elsewhere have come at an absolutely horrific cost. Uh, to to Russian soldiers. Um, when when you look at this and and where we are at this uh, at this stage, many thought it would never go on uh, this long. Is there still, or what is the support like for each leader? Let's start with with Zelensky. Zelensky, what, does he still have the support of Ukraine? Ukrainians. The last opinion polls indicate that he still has uh, very strong support, but not as strong as. As before, and there are some uh, issues. Uh, there have been rumors floating around that uh, 
uh, Zelensky is going to fire the commander in chief of the Ukrainian forces because there's dissatisfaction with uh, the counteroffensive that had been attempted uh, for months. Uh, um, the Ukrainian papers are saying that there's very stru- uh, strong support within the military for the commander of the military forces and that. Uh, the soldiers want the politicians to stay out, so there are tensions. We know that the uh, mayor of uh, Kiev, who has been a political rival, has attacked uh, Zelensky. But this is a democracy, and democracies tend to be uh, rather, rather messy. Now, in the case of Vladimir Putin, you can't really measure the support because people are very scared. They're not going to be honest with the uh, pollsters. Uh, he's right. facing an election uh, uh, in March, and the results already have been predetermined uh, because this is a, a, a sure thing. Uh, but there have been certain protests. Uh, some uh, wives and mothers have uh, a tremendous risk to themselves protested uh, against uh, the military. There's widespread draft evasion. So I suspect there is an erosion of support, but uh, not enough that... Uh, it has persuaded uh, Vladimir Putin to change course. He's still uh, confident at uh, one level. And at another level, there's also some kind of desperation because he has no choice. Uh, He can't just admit defeat uh, and he's not going to leave office and retire. Uh, I've only got a few seconds left. How has your opinion of this conflict changed from the beginning to where we are now? Has it? Um, at the beginning, I, I, I must say I was uh, very concerned that Ukraine could not hold out because even though it was quite remarkable that they survived the first few days, uh, there was such overwhelming force that Russia was uh, applying, and sometimes quantity prevails over quality. Uh, but the West began to provide Ukraine with some help, and the extraordinary determination of the Ukrainians has been nothing short of remarkable. And when we look at this conflict mm. now, uh, about 22 years, I think it tells us that Russia's uh, strategic miscalculation has been absolutely profound, and that if the West stays the course, Russia will lose. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, always fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. If I had a million dollars, man, I'd buy me a Bronco, a couple of skidoos, I'd get me a great big fast boat, uh, get me a great big honking motorhome so I could drive to the racetrack, and uh, woo-way, life would be good. And then I'd be calling this guy for help. Mitch Fox is with a senior financial consultant from the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. Reason being, affordability crisis is increasingly impacting the abilities, uh, the ability for Canadians to retire. Um, it's things, it's affordability. It's whether you're at one end or the other, where you, whether you're trying to buy a house or, or even, uh, reach retirement, the challenges are there. Uh, and of course, planning your financial future every Saturday morning, you can catch with Don, Mitch, and myself. Mitch, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. How are you doing today? So far, so good. So, Mitch, is this about um, the the rising costs and the affordability and everything we're just seeing in a post-pandemic world? Or is it about, you know, just not saving enough? 
Yeah, so it's kind of a combination of both and a couple other factors as well. So they did a survey about the readiness of people over 50 about how ready they are for retirement. And I feel like that's that's far too young to actually decide if you are ready for retirement, because frankly, you don't necessarily know what your retirement's going to look like at 50. And I know Freedom 55 was it's like the it's the standard and people want to really do that freedom 55 but do you actually do you know when freedom 55 started scott uh i remember it like back in the 80s like seriously as soon as you were talking that's what the first thing that came to my head was oh the freedom 55 and it it must have been like 30 years ago uh clearly before we were all living to in our into our 90s but but yeah it just seems odd does that still stick in people's heads that you know man we can cash it all in at 55 and just live the life of riley so among the people that are still are looking to retire. Freedom 55 is a pretty constant term and people strive for it. But we do see people living a lot longer, which means that their money has to last a lot longer. And uh, you were actually pretty much dead on. Freedom 55 came 1984. And uh, mm-hmm. you were right there with the 80s. And the average lifespan in 1984 was 76. And the average lifespan right now is actually 83 in Canada. So that's so seven we should years be- longer that your money has to last for you. And another interesting thing that I found here is that companies used to give defined benefit plans a lot more. Um, actually, just in 1998 mm. and the Fortune 500, and this is US, but we're talking Canada, Canadian corporations are fairly similar. 59% of Fortune 500 companies were giving DB plans, defined benefit plans to their employees. And right now, uh, just about 14%. Mm. And that means that Canadians are having to actually save and put money away um, on their own with financial planners, hopefully. But at, on on the other side, they have to do a defined contribution plan and they have to manage it properly and make sure that they're investing it how it should be. And getting the proper advice to do this is very crucial to actually being ready for retirement. You know, you bring up a valid point, Mitch, about the Freedom 55 thing and what life was like back in 1984 and such. So even with uh, just the way things have changed, you could pretty much say Freedom 62 now because people are living seven years younger. And that would be a retirement a little bit earlier, I guess, than, you know, the age of 65. That's certainly a bit more realistic than 55, I guess, is is even that an attainable goal to try to get out before you're 65? Yeah, I think people retiring before 60 is, is not common anymore. It used to no. be very common when the Freedom 55 was kind of the slogan there. But now I find people are retiring, most of them are over 60. And it's it, it creates a kind of a different situation because people can start taking CPP at 60. So you actually see uh, some people uh, at age 60, they start to dial back their work a little bit, not necessarily retire, but Mm -hmm. um, they might dial back their work a little bit and uh, just work part-time. But I also find that people are working a lot longer into 65 so that they don't get the reduced CPP. Because if you do take CPP early um, at 60 versus 65, the break-even is 74. And so if you live past 74, every year you live past is is going to be detrimental because you would have been more beneficial to wait to 65 to take your CPP. Um, it's actually a huge difference if you take it for 60 versus 65. Um, if you live to 95, the difference of taking it at 60 to 65 can be as much as $76,000 from your CPP. 
And I know people, when they turn 60, they see, oh, well, I saved all this money, really take it right now. But if they wait five years and maybe even mm. draw down their riffs or RSPs that they've been working to build up there um, while they can so that they can minimize tax on that, then they can maximize how much they get from their CPP, which will also allow their plans to really work more for them and create a more efficient retirement paycheck, which we do with a lot of our clients. We create that retirement paycheck and no one should retire blindly. So we're talking about retirement readiness today. And really that what that is, is having financial independence. And we do plans for all of our clients and that's testing against inflation, market crashes, having a worse return. So these are all all situations that we stress test our plans against. And all of our retirement plans are to keep the same standard of living or even more so during retirement because you want to do lots of stuff. Mitch Fox with us, Senior Financial Consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. He, Don, myself, you catch Saturday mornings planning your financial future. Uh, Mitch, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a good day. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. uh, You know, normally to make Canadians feel better about the politics in Canada, we go and we talk to people in the United States about politics there. But I don't know. I don't think it's any worse there than what we're wading through right now. Just... Either ends of the stripe, you might say, other either ends of the stick. Uh, but the, the latest news that's coming out of the U.S. in regard to uh, Donald Trump and his nomination for the Republican presidency, uh, there's some that want to, I, I guess, declare him the winner now before it runs its course. Don't know what all that means, if it's going to happen or not. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN, and here now. Brian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. How about yourself? So far, so good. But, you know, shaking our heads up here, too, as well. So, uh, you know, it's going everywhere, going on everywhere. We're doing it down here, but it's to get the lice out of our hair, or at least the (laughs) political lice. All right. So uh, there's a group that want to, uh, within the Republican Party, that want to declare him the presumptive winner. Uh, What are the pros and cons? Why are they doing this? Is this just try to get uh, Nikki Haley out of the picture? Uh, What are your thoughts on what we're seeing? Well, with Donald Trump, there's always a grift. So if he says it's one thing, be sure it's not. The simple fact of the matter is it would make it easier for him to grift uh, more money off Republicans if he's the only one on the ballot. He doesn't really care, although he claims he does, that he would win or lose in the fall. He just needs the money because E. Jean Carroll just socked him with an $83 million fine, which, by the way, as I looked up and said yesterday, that's more than an entire that, – that's more than – what an entire NBA team gets paid per year. So Donald Trump is, you know, well, except for the more expensive ones, but some of the least expensive ones. So Donald Trump has really got stiffed and he's got to pay that bill. And the best way to pay that bill is to be the only one on the ballot. And so he can get all the money from the Republicans that he wants and pay off his mounting court costs. So it seems uh, there's a, sorry, go go ahead. ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So it seems that uh, there's a group in the Republican Party that wanted to just go ahead and presume him the winner. But he spoke out and said, no, 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 we don't want to do that uh, because he's concerned what people might think about that. Uh, Again, who's wagging who here? Well, that's the tail wagging the dog. Of course, he wants that. He just doesn't want you to think that he wants that because he wants that. So please give him that. And by the way, hand him the money. 
This is it's just Donald Trump. It's how he conducts business. Of course, he wants to everything that he says, everything that he's done, denying that he lost the election, saying he'd be dictator for the day, saying that everybody should drop out of the race while at the same time saying, no, don't make me the presumptive winner. Oh, by the way, Nikki Haley, get out of the race. Oh, by the way, if you give money to Nikki Haley, you're a you're a a, a traitor to the Republican Party. Oh, by the way, everybody else who got out of the race should uh, bow and and worship me and and uh, endorse me as the candidate. Of course, he's lying. When uh, here's how you tell when Donald Trump is lying: if he's breathing and he opens his <laughs> mouth, it's a lie. <laughs> so, are you surprised Nikki Haley is still in this? No, because she can, I'll tell you one thing about Nikki Haley. She's not nearly <laughs> as ignorant as Donald Trump would portray her because by being the only one in the race and by getting enough money, she's going to stay in this race because if nothing else, if Donald Trump is knocked out of this race, it's yeah. Nikki Haley's to win. So she sees that on the writing on the wall and that's why she's still there. And by the way, that's why some Democrats would secretly like her to stay in the race. Even though she's as dangerous as Donald Trump to their particular policies, they would like to see her knock Donald Trump out of the race. And the sad part of that is that she would do better against Biden than Trump. Yeah. Uh, so she is a plan B. Why wouldn't have, uh, like a DeSantis or the other one stayed in as a plan B? Because you've talked about this many times that you don't think he'll make it that far. So if he if something does happen to him, why didn't the others want to play the same card? Well, they're uh, like I said, they're Republicans. So therefore, they're not bright. <laughs> so the, Nikki Haley is the brightest comet in that patch. And that's because she sees the, the, the opening in the road. Uh, you can't yeah. expect Ron DeSantis, who wears white, good shoes and short pants and, and looks like Spanky or Alfalfa, to be able to put together enough to understand this race. He came <laughs> in trying to be, you know, Donald Trump light, and he couldn't even pull that off. Nikki Haley, at least, is to the minds of Republicans, a traditional Republican, even though she said she would pardon Donald Trump and supports him 95 percent of the time. She comes across as level headed and a potential winner. Do you think there's Republican voters out there that are looking at that plan B with her and that feel perhaps the same way you do, that he won't make the full run? Oh, everyone. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> Isn't that obvious? in the Republican Party, but they're not going to say it. They're going to bow. Yeah. Look, here's the problem. If you come out against Donald Trump in this Republican Party, Donald Trump will say you're a traitor. That's yeah. what he did with Nikki Haley's supporters. This is no longer the Republican Party. In, it's only the Republican Party in name. When they get to Milwaukee, they should just rebrand themselves as the MAGA party and get it over with. Because this party is all about Donald Trump and no one else. And until you're aware of that and accept that, you're never going to deal with it. And that's the, the, the even some Republicans are slow to understand that. And certainly many of the Democrats are. But that's if, a fact. And he's shown that. So if the Republicans and the Democrats uh, want to do something serious, it's recognize it for what it is. So do you think if Donald Trump does run into those legal problems that prevent him from actually running, that the Republicans, when it's time, will say, oh, well, nothing we can do here. Now we got to back Haley. No, Donald Trump will never back Haley. He, he won't admit that he lost the last election. Donald Trump won't admit. So how does the Republican Party? So how does Donald the Republican Trump Party? 
How does the Republican Party go on? How does the Republican Party go on if Trump is taken down and Haley's left? Well, the the Republican Party will have to become the Republican Party and not the MAGA Party. But that won't really much matter in this election because she polls so well against Joe Biden because Joe Biden has been so horrid in communicating what his thoughts and deeds are. Um, this is a that's a problem of the Democratic Party more than anything else. And so that's the sad part is no matter how low the Republicans lower the bar, the Democrats can barely seem to crawl over it. So it, it would it, it's not heartwarming in, in any respect what we're going through down here for for the fall. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist and author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN. Brian, it's always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. You too, brother. Catch you next time. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly heard the story about uh, the CEO of CBC, Catherine Tate, uh, way back on a CBC broadcast when questioned by uh, their senior anchor about bonuses that executives would be getting, even though 10% of the workforce uh, was being uh, laid off. And of course, um, the CEO didn't um, didn't deny that there wouldn't be bonuses now finding herself in front of the House of Commons Heritage Committee trying to answer to this. She calls it not bonuses, but incentive pay. What does it all mean? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, here now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Ian, your thoughts on what's going on here and and how the CEO of the CBC is uh, is conducting business. Well, let me go big picture first. Um, bonuses, or provide, I think that, that she's dancing there on the word, uh, you know, their performance pay bonuses. These are a standard uh, technique uh, or strategy, if you want to call it that, uh, at the at the corporate level in uh, large organizations for the executive, not just the CEO. They're typically paid to very senior executives, CFO, COO, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so this is pretty standard in uh, large uh, corporations in the private sector in Canada and the United States. So there's no problem per se with bonuses or performance pay being paid. It's a standard uh, executive sure. recruitment strategy. They're typically, uh, overwhelmingly, <laughs> uh, connected to performance. Yeah. In other words, in the private sector, you know, you have to hit certain profit targets, uh, certain sales targets, sometimes market share targets, but they are connected. You just don't get them because, oh, you're a nice person and you smile sweetly every day. Uh, it's like in, it's similar to sports, you know, in NFL, NHL, uh, basketball. Um, they uh, often will give a base contract and then you get bonuses. Uh, or performance pay for exceeding. You know, if you score more than yeah. touchdown, ten touchdowns, you get an extra bonus. Gronkowski has talked about this in the past, and so has Patrick Mahomes and others. So it's it's, it's common. It's it's a standard. Uh, it's perfectly legitimate. Yeah, right. The problem here uh, is um, this is not a private for profit company. For let's we state the obvious. It's a crown corporation, and you can say, well, so what? Maybe they pay um, uh, performance bonuses and other crowns. I wouldn't be surprised, but I haven't looked yet. Um, but the it goes. It's it, when I say worse than that. It's it's more complex than that because the CBC gets a billion dollars a year of subsidies. So this really is not a normal 
uh, company that, you know, even if it was a yeah. crown corporation like Air Canada used to be once upon a time, you're not, it's not really the same because most, much of your income comes from the a subsidy from Parliament. So, and then to finally uh, make this even more messy is in English Canada, as distinct from French Canada, uh, the CBC is doing terribly. Their their market share just keeps going down, 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 and they're down to I think it's two hundred thousand on the national CBC national, and they're down to about three percent of English Canada's uh, viewership. So I think it's hard to argue that they're doing well by any any reasonable measure of doing well. And so one can question. It's not whether they laid people off or not. It, you could argue that why are you paying? bonuses or performance pay when the performance is so negative. Exactly. Uh, negative meaning your market share is going down. Your viewership, your audience is going down. And and so it can be challenged on that front. And then finally, yes, the layoffs, the optics are terrible because they're laying off 600 people. And here are the, here are the executives. Okay, she said, Ms. Tate, the president said it's only $14 million. You know, the total revenue of the company is over a billion dollars. Uh, fair enough. But the optics are truly terrible. And uh, uh, so <laughs> there you go. Uh, the CEO said that these aren't bonuses, you know, much like rebranding the carbon tax, I guess. It's 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 all in how you view it. Um, but she said that as long as uh, key business objectives are met. But as you pointed out, if there are losses what are those objectives? It seems that if you show up and do the job, you're entitled to, and she even yeah. used the term full pay. How can yeah. you consider a bonus or an incentive as part of your full pay? Um, um, so, uh, again, I you know, bis- key business yeah. objectives, Matt, what are they? Yes. Um, and, and I completely, by the way, I just don't accept her argument that, well, it's not a bonus, it's yeah. performance pay. Bonus is for performance. Yeah. That's what bonuses are with executive compensation. They're not bonuses because you smile. They're not bonuses because you didn't get sick this year. The bonus is based on performance. So these are these are synonyms. I don't want to get into grammar here, okay? One's the same as the other saying, no, it's not it's not a bonus, it's a performance. They're yeah. the same thing. She's playing with words. Okay, so let's take that off the table. Um the I don't know who set the, I presume it was the board of directors, but they're appointed by the government of Canada by ordering council, which means the prime minister and the cabinet. So they're political appointees. So yes, they're arm's length removed from the cabinet, but you know, it's a, it's a distinction without a difference because the entire board of directors are appointed, uh, and they're people that are not, uh, shall we say, critical of, of the government. I would never get appointed to the board of directors of the CBC or any Crown Corporation because I've been critical of their policies in the media. Okay, okay, that's fine. That's the price I pay, and that's fine. I accept that. Uh, but, but my point is, is that they set objectives. If indeed she got the bonuses or the performance pay, uh, because she said they met, uh, that she and the executives met their their deliverables, their performance. Well, that raises profound questions about the role of the Board of Governors, which uh, is to play uh, the role of governance. And I have served on a Board of Directors, Board of Governors at Carleton University for three years. And their job is to act to uh, as the due diligence check and balance on the executive. Well, if you are setting the performance um, uh, uh, targets, so low that you can uh, get performance pay for going downhill, in other words, losing customers, losing market share, well, then that raises very profound questions about the quality 
and the and the performance of the board of directors. Because you normally, and, and this has been studied to death, anybody can look this up, performance pay, bonus pay, is based on, you, you set stretch targets, what are called stretch targets. You don't just set targets that anybody can make. Yeah. Then there's no point. You set targets that are you know well beyond the normal, you, uh, that are increases. So if you're normally scoring 10 touchdowns a year, they'll say, okay, if you break 12 touchdowns and above, we start, the, the bonuses kick in. They're designed to incentivize you to exceed Normal deliverables, normal performance. That's the whole point. That's the logic of performance, uh, executive compensation, and performance pay. Well, in this instance, it looks like they set the performance targets below, <laughs> below, hmm. below what they were supposed to do. In other words, it's almost as if they said, "Well, if you go and lose some money and uh, you know lose some customers and lose market share, we're going to give you a bonus for for being a failure." I mean, I'm I'm trying to be a little bit humorous here to make my yeah. to get my point across. Uh, it sounds like they've structured these bonuses uh, or performance pay very poorly at a very low level of uh, of, uh, of achievement. And so she is correct by saying it's up to the board to decide. She is co- completely legally correct in saying that. But it raises, I mean, as I said, the board. It's not independent of the government. They are people that are friendly to the government. Mm-hmm. That's how you get appointed to a Crown Corporation, whether it's Canada Post or to CMHC or to CBC. You don't get appointed there because you're out there, you know, criticizing the government once a week or once every two weeks in op-eds. You get you get criticized because you've been known to be a good, loyal friend, supporter. Uh, I don't mean you want to have a partisan card-carrying membership, but yeah. you're known to be friendly to the government. And, but that doesn't ob, can't obviate or undermine or cancel their duty. They have duties at law as directors, just as I did. Mm-hmm. And they're the duties of uh, financial – you're a financial fiduciary. And you have duties of responsibility that are embedded in the Directors Act, the Corporations Act. And uh, I'm not saying that they abrogated these, but I'm saying that the performance standards of the directors are equally, I think, should suspect. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're not imposing a better due diligence. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Uh, CBC execs getting bonuses while some are laid off. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Shame on you! 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 What you're hearing is uh, a sound of a video which was taken in Gatineau uh, just across the river from uh, Ottawa on Monday, uh, Monday night, showing angry protesters getting close to uh, the prime minister. And the latest column from Joe Warmington in the Toronto Sun, security threat against Trudeau, all of Canada's concern. And it's interesting because we haven't really seen much on this, nor do we when these things sort of come up. And I'm not sure why. But again, uh, you know, the prime minister says this is not Canada. Uh, it's not who we are. And it is. And this is proof of it when the prime minister uh, has to get whisked away from protesters who are uh, chanting a foul of him. Joe Warmington with his columnist with the Toronto Sun. He's here now. Joe, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing fine. It's uh, obviously the country is different than it used to be. You know, you have that video or that audio. The audio doesn't really, I mean, one thing to say no. shame on you to the prime minister, but they were actually getting right in his space and the 
you know, equivalent of the Secret Service, his protective detail. They they had to move him not to his own car, but to a lead car to get him out of there. And I think that that's uh, why I wrote the column. I just think that's, you know, too much. And uh, we don't want to see the Prime Minister in a situation like that. And it illustrates just the, the kinds of, uh, you know, things that are happening out there now. Are you surprised we don't hear more about this? Because we know what well, happens yet. You know, media. you cover it, I cover it. But it seems for some reason we're not talking about people being angry with the prime minister. And I guess because that doesn't bode well on the prime minister. But you're bringing up a very valid point here who, you know, like myself, have challenged the prime minister. But this is stuff. This is security stuff around the leader of our country, no matter what his political stripe is. Well, there's no question about it. It's appalling and disappointing to hear anybody say anything different than that. I did hear a lot of that. I read some of those comments. And, you know, he's the prime minister, and we may not agree on some things. We agree on many things. Um, you know, he's a father and and a fellow Canadian. So you don't want to see any leader, uh, whether it's the premier or the mayor, or what have you. It's okay to protest them. But, you know, they were running right after him, and you you could see that. They had the security to get him into a different car. And I haven't seen that before in Canada. I've seen a few things around him that I don't like. I never understand why, you know, sometimes during the campaigns, I, I think you could probably have a perimeter, you know, laid out there so that nobody crosses the line. This one here was weird because he wasn't supposed to be at this location in uh, Gatineau. It was a, uh, he's supposed to go to Islamic Center. They canceled it on, on him, and they moved it over. The leaders met him at this uh, apartment building with a party room or something along those lines. So the protesters, you could see it on their own social media. They they moved their location where to meet, and you, they literally saw him, and they were running down the street. So it was just a really strange set of circumstances. But these are the pro-Palestinian, you know, which, you know, that kind of thing, but it doesn't really matter who the protesters are, or what they're angry with them about. You saw the way they treated David Menzies with yeah. Christian Freeland. And there was a year or so before that where the Mounties really took Menzoid down and just about killed him. He was off work six weeks just for standing on the sidewalk. So some people they're prepared to really hurt, uh, I guess rebel news or whatever. But in the case of the pro-Palestinian uh, protesters, I guess they didn't want to arrest anybody, but I, I think a couple of them sure could have been, Scott. Uh, it, it seems at one point in this video that the prime minister goes to move towards them, and then the security said, oh, no, 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 go there, and they turn him around the other way. Do you think he's in denial that people are upset with him? Or to the level? I, I think it's a combination of that. I, I don't think that any, I don't think a dozen people out there represents more than no. a dozen people. I mean, there are a lot of yeah. people angry with different issues on different things. And, and you know, anybody in power for eight years or nine years, whatever he's into, is yeah. going to have that. I, I, I think he likes the action, too. I really do. I think, you know, he enjoys that kind of thing. Uh, you've seen him do it before. I mean, he just seems to gravitate to it. Security did his job. Get him the heck out of there. Nobody wants to see him hurt. We can't have people bullying the prime minister. He makes decisions. If you don't like them, you vote whatever way you want to vote. You can exercise your point of view that way or go to Parliament Hill. Crosses the line when you go to his house or you get in his space. And, you know, I thought it was important to write that. And, you know, it was the number one red column uh, post media. So I guess it, it was, you know, on the minds of many Canadians. 
All right, Joe Warmington with us, his latest in the Sun security threat against Trudeau, all of Canada's concern, and you can find it on the Sun website. Joe, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Just a little plug for my new column about a woman that was stabbed with a dirty syringe in downtown Toronto. Uh, just to show you what's going on in the streets of Toronto. Watch for that on torontosun.com. All right. Thank you, Joe. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We're tackling auto theft head on with $51 million over three years to help police identify and dismantle criminal networks behind auto theft rings. Because people shouldn't have to live in fear of their cars getting stolen in the middle of the night or doors being kicked in at their residence and sometimes at gunpoint. The $121 million investment over five years is going to provide more resources for our police forces. It's going to help disrupt the drug supply chains, stop illegal guns from entering our province, curb the level of auto thefts and carjackings, and put more criminals and thugs behind bars where they belong. That is Premier Doug Ford uh, speaking earlier today. The feds in the province have announced Ontario funding to curb uh, auto theft, which has just gone through the roof, and gun violence and gang crime, uh, to which one listener has emailed, if they weren't so far down in the polls, the liberals would probably not even be talking about this. But it wasn't just last week, but we were saying on the show how police in southern Italy uh, stumbled upon a pile of containers, 250 uh, luxury vehicles that were stolen from Canada inside those containers in Italy on their way for uh, or to the Middle East. Obviously, something has got to be done. Uh, you know, we heard the prime minister talk uh, a while ago about handguns and how um, uh, we have to go after um, and, and ban those and, and, and make restrictions even more severe. But really nothing about borders, which is the similar uh, sort of crime as we're seeing with with car theft and such. This while announced yesterday, gun crimes are up nine percent uh, back as far as 2021 to here, to where we are now. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's bring in Sean Sparling, retired Deputy Chief Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently President of Investigative Solutions Network. Here now, Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. All good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for the time. You know, I, w- I was commenting about a news story last week where Italian police found like 250 cars in containers that were bound for the Middle East. Is there anything we can do, Sean, to stop, you know, forget about being stolen and in your driveway. Is there anything we can do to stop them from leaving Canada? It seems we've got a, a, quite a porous border. Well, there's certainly that. It's, I think it's utterly ridiculous, the amount of auto theft going on in Ontario and Canada at large. Um, and it's coming down to just uh, the lack of enforcement. It's not the police that uh, on the police about that. It's about the lack of funding and the lack yeah. of uh, strategic direction at our political uh, will to actually have strong enforcement. This is all about organized crime and transnational uh, crime. So you're right, the board, border is porous, but it starts with tackling these organized crime groups. And then finally, they're going to do something about it through this funding. Uh, what do you think this funding will do? Will it even make a dent? Yeah, it sounds like it's a pretty sizable amount. Uh, I think you will see it uh, have some impact on it. Will it be everything? Probably not. Uh, but it's certainly going to put some uh, some officers on the street that dedicated to auto theft and uh, taking down these organized rings and uh, tackling organized crime. Listen, the, uh, the, you're talking about the gun violence. 
And uh, we've listened for the number of years about defund the police and shutting yeah. down these different task force in uh, like in the GTA for guns and gangs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the result of a lot of that. Um, and it's really a time to actually go back to, uh, to, to enforcement. You don't abandon your community partnerships, but you certainly have to have some enforcement to put bad guys in jail. Are you surprised at the level of increase and in just how the, the extent of the increase uh, in car theft in the GTHA? Like the word must be out. Well, yeah, it's again, like I said, it's ridiculous. And everybody just watched it happen and uh, wondered why it was happening. There's nobody enforcing it at the end of the day. And uh, now they're actually looking at that enforcement is the solution to this type of crime and actually doing something and dismantle these organizations. You don't do that through uh, through other means except for a police officer uh, arresting people. Uh, I got to come back to the borders here and the handgun information that was released yesterday, the gun crimes up 9%. We remember, um, and again, I'm not a gun collector. I, I couldn't care either way. As long as the police have them, that's all I care about. Um, but, you know, again, we're, we're hearing lots about handgun bans and those law-abiding citizens that collect them and, 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 and use them for sport shooting and such. They're being hammered while we're seeing a 9% increase. And again, police organizations organization saying that between 80 and 90 percent of the guns that are committed in crimes uh, here in the GTHA are coming across the border. Are you surprised to see gun crimes up nine uh, percent? And something that's even really shocking is the 12 to 17 year age uh, years of age uh, demographic where it seems to really have, have been increasing. Yeah, no, this all goes back to the same thing about the auto thefts. There's been nobody over the last number of years doing like some serious uh, gang enforcement. I know Toronto has their task force, but they're just uh, the police are just getting uh, beat up over the special interest groups and yeah. uh, lack of funding. It takes enforcement to deal with these things. Now, as far as uh, gun control, now there's a whole debate to that. I'm a gun owner and I have handguns, but I also believe in strong gun control. So the uh, there yep. is a balance in there somewhere, um, and these uh, these guns are coming from the states mainly, the ones that are being used in crime, or are they being stolen from lawful owners? Um, but the uh, there needs to be strong enforcement on the criminal side of it. Uh, do you see the either one of these two problems as something that police can get a handle on? Yes, they can. Um, they, uh, again, through uh, proper funding and uh, strategies, they have the tools to, uh, to go after these, uh, these organized crimes and these gangs and whatnot. They have the tools to do it. They just need the resourcing to do it, and they need the political will uh, from the politicians to let them do their work. Do you think the public's perception is changing on this? I mean, you know, uh, not that everybody doesn't have lots to work on, but it seems we've gone we've gone from defunding the police to now governments offering millions of dollars to try to get things like this under control again. Right, because everybody's uh, kind of forgot the balance, and certainly the the defund the police. What's at the core of that is uh, community engagement, investing in upstream activities, and all these things. All good things that should happen. But there are core policing functions like in uh, enforcing the gangs and organized crime that takes a police officer out there with proper funding and proper political will at the top to make it work. And that's what was lacking for a number of years and allowed this kind of crime to flourish. You need a balance of both things. Sean Sparling with us, retired deputy chief, Sioux St. Marie Police and president of Investigative Solutions Network, talking about the feds and the province announcing big funds to try to curb auto theft, gun violence and gang crime. Now, Sean, thanks for the time. Be well. Great. Thanks for the invite.
We've talked at length uh, with the people from MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying, on, uh, on, on where we are with this program and how it is advancing. And the advances in access to medical assistance in dying or MAID are on pause right now, and some are concerned what happens after the pause. Now, you might remember that way back when, uh, the federal government opened up the discussion to bringing in this program for those who are uh, suffering from severe mental illness. Uh, for many who may have supported this or do support this for those with a terminal illness, uh, this has become um, a pretty slippery slope. And as a result, uh, at least the government's reading the room on this and hitting the pause button until, um, I guess, their reasoning uh, until everybody is ready for this and, and the system is ready for this. Uh, and I, I'm not sure uh, exactly what that means. Let's bring in Michael Cooper, member of Parliament for St. Albert, Edmonton, Alberta, shadow minister for democratic reform and member of the special joint committee on medical assistance in dying. He is with us now, Michael Cooper. Thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. Uh, considering where we are with this discussion and, 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 you know, many do support it in the sense of a, a terminal illness and such, but are you surprised how quickly this discussion has moved from terminal illness to those with mental illness? Well, this represents a radical expansion of MAID. Uh, MAID is medical assistance in dying, assistance in dying, where death was reasonably foreseeable uh, for persons who are suffering to uh, for individuals who had the capacity to make the choice to end their lives just a little bit sooner. Uh, that was what was contemplated when Parliament passed the original made legislation, Bill C-14. What this represents is something that is far removed from that and something that would amount to state-sanctioned, state-facilitated suicide for persons who are suffering from things like depression. Uh, so it's a radical change, and what uh, the Special Joint Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying heard from leading experts, including leading psychiatrists, is that this expansion is not appropriate and cannot be implemented safely, and it's why conservatives are calling on the liberals to put an indefinite pause on what would be a radical and dangerous expansion of made. Is, is this just a temporary pause, Michael? Because it looks like this still is a go, but they, they just have to do more work on it. Uh, do they show any signs of stepping back on this? It's unclear. Uh, at a press conference, both uh, Mark Holland, the Minister of Health, and Arif Varani, the Minister of Justice, would not say. Uh, they said there is legislation. It, it, I anticipate it will be tabled later this week. It is scheduled to be debated uh, next Wednesday. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, we, we should never have been in this position. The approach that the liberals have taken to this has been nothing short of shambolic. Uh, they made an ideological decision to move ahead with this expansion before studying the issue. And it resulted in all uh, chairs of psychiatry at all 17 medical schools in December of 2022 to write a letter calling on the liberals to put a pause on this expansion. They brought in last year 11th hour legislation to provide for a one-year extension. One year later, here we are. And the very issues that were identified as being problematic continue to be problematic. And so anything 
less than putting a permanent or indefinite pause on this uh, would fall short. Kicking the can down the road by a year or two is only going to result in us finding uh, ourselves in the very position we're in today, in all likelihood. Uh, You use the word capacity, Michael, and we remember that from uh, those that have terminal illness. And if you don't make this request before you become incapacitated, uh, there's nothing that can be done and you can't ask for made. You have to be of sound mind and body when you make this decision prior to becoming severely ill, which may incapacitate you from making that decision. How do you come up with that criteria with somebody who's mentally ill? Well, this is one of the fundamental clinical problems with MAID and mental illness that uh, experts identified, Uh, namely that it is difficult for clinicians to accurately assess someone with a underlying mental health disorder with respect to them making a request as to whether such a request is a rational request or one motivated by suicidal ideation. And that is underscored by the fact that uh, in 90% of suicide deaths, uh, persons suffer from uh, a mental disorder. What have we learned from this process so far? Well, I think what we learned is that we have a liberal government that put ideology ahead of evidence-based decision-making, a government that made an ideological decision to go ahead with this before consulting experts and other stakeholders. And uh, and, and it just underscores a, a level of recklessness on the part of the liberals uh, insofar as that this does represent a very significant change with respect to the made regime that... Uh, impacts among some of the most vulnerable persons in Canadian society, underscoring the need to proceed carefully uh, before uh, moving ahead with this. And based on everything uh, that has come out, it's, it's clear that Canada isn't, quote unquote, ready for this. And I would submit it's very unlikely that Canada will ever be ready for this because, uh, frankly, offering made instead of hope and help to persons suffering from mental illness, I think is wrongheaded. Uh, you've said they put a pause on this. You would like something more definite. Um, do, they, do they lay out what criteria, what they're looking for, what, they, what questions they need to have answered before they do this? Well, they haven't, but uh, the special joint committee uh, made a recommendation that was unanimous amongst all the recognized parties in the House of Commons. So this is not just conservatives calling for a pause. It's liberal MPs, NDP MPs, bloc MPs on the committee. And uh, it's also uh, what uh, the provinces, the vast majority of provinces, are calling on the liberals to do. In fact, uh, the other day, a letter was sent, signed by... uh, Uh, attorneys generals and ministers of health from seven of the 10 provinces and all three territories. It's interesting that even though we've had medical assistance in dying for a while now, it is still controversial enough. This appears that it would be even more controversial. Would you agree? Well, no question. 
because it is a radical departure from what made was initially contemplated, I think, by most Canadians and by Parliament to, to be in terms of a made regime. And uh, one of the other fundamental problems with this from a political standpoint and a legal standpoint is that it is difficult, if not impossible, in the case of soul mental illness to accurately determine irremediability. Now, it, it is a prerequisite under the law that one must suffer from uh, an irremediable disease or illness. So from a legal standpoint, how can this go ahead if it's difficult, if not impossible, to predict? But from a clinical standpoint and from a moral standpoint, uh, what it would mean is that persons who could get better, who could go on to lead a healthy and happy life, uh, could have their lives prematurely ended. And that, in my view, is fundamentally wrong. In fact, we heard evidence from psychiatrists who said that uh, the error rate in terms of determining uh, the irremediability of a patient with a mental illness could be as high as 50 percent. Hmm. Michael Cooper with us, member of parliament for St. Albert, Edmonton, Alberta, shadow minister for democratic reform, member of the special joint committee on medical assistance in dying made and mental illness. The discussion, Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks very much. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts. All right. I have no control. It has nothing to do with me, even though that it is the last 10 minutes of my show. It is the influence, like Donald Trump has over the Republicans, uh, the same influence Scott Radley has over the producers of this great radio station. And somehow there's some sort of battle about songs. Uh, and next thing you know, we're ending the show with Dropkick Me Jesus. I blame it solely on this man, Scott Radley, coming up after the, the uh, 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. I hope you're doing well and happy. Misdirected rage, my friend. I can't stop him either. <laughs> This is the Frankenstein. Rage. This is the Frankenstein monster that has decided to take on its own life and direction, and it cannot be stopped any longer. I, yeah, I, I think it's completely out of control. But you know, um, we'll see where it goes. We'll see what happens tomorrow and what song they play you in with. All right, let's talk about. Uh, I find this fascinating because once, and I've said, and you know me, I'm extremely critical of uh, our federal government right now. I've had it. I'm done. Uh, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, and, and today, $121 million announced to uh, finally address the gun crime, the uh, gang uh, violence, and, and specifically car theft uh, that is happening uh, specifically in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. Um, and this despite... Uh, a handgun ban that uh, targeted owners rather than the U.S. guns coming across the border, uh, which are responsible for 80, 90 percent of the crime. Uh, we're not paying attention. Uh, we show up to the fire with a bucket of water and a ladder after the house is burnt to the ground. We're doing the same thing here. It's great that they're doing this now after 250 cars are discovered in Italy in containers that are bound for the Middle East. Um, but as one listener said to me, and I'll read the, uh, the actual uh, last word in a second, they wouldn't even be talking about this if they weren't tanking in the polls. And where does this put the defund the police discussion when the feds are pointing up $121 million to help gangs, guns, and car theft? Okay, so my question is this, and I'll get to your answer in just a second. What is this going to do? I mean, I, I, I like it's great 
for any government of any stripe at any level to say, okay, we're going to throw millions of dollars at this. What, what is this going to do? Because to me, the only way you really make an impact on any particular crime, whether it's guns or car thefts or whatever else, is you say the penalties for such are going to be held strictly and heavily. And so, mm. you know, I remember when the, the, the former mayor of Hamilton, uh, Fred Eisenberger was talking about having a handgun ban in the city and it's like, okay, that's terrific. Um, what's that going to do? What's that going Nothing. to do? If you, if you say, okay, we already have laws on the books and now what you're going to get a fine if you also have a handgun in Hamilton, like that's going to be a deterrent. What, what's the deterrent quality? And I know a lot of people, Scott say, you know what deterrent, it doesn't really work. It's not sure it does. Sure it does. If you were to say, if you are caught with an illegal handgun, whether you use it in a crime or not, if you are possessing an illegal handgun, you are going to jail for two years because of the severity of what happens with guns. If you were to say, doesn't matter if you use it, first offense, you are going to jail for two years as a minimum sentence. You don't think some people will think about whether or not it's worth it? Yeah, and I think the parole issue and and the you know the whole penalty issue, jail issue, uh, that's that's another aspect of all of this. Uh, obviously, you know they they talk about the catch and release uh, uh, issues, but you know it just seems odd to me that you know Italians can find our stolen cars yet we can't. And and again, it's just attention. It's boots on the ground. And I'll give you a personal experience. Our neighbor had their car stolen. And, you know, the commotion started at one o'clock in the morning when all of a sudden there were police cars everywhere and, and, and cops banging on doors. And they caught them. And this guy did not even know that his car was stolen till the police knocked on this door and said, here, is this your car? We've just got it for you. And the reason they were able to do that is because they got boots on the ground and following the rings that are going in and out of the area doing this. And they actually stopped this as it was happening, not after the fact. That's the sort of thing we need to do. And I think and that's how often is that going to happen though? Like, I don't want to be cynical know. about this whole uh, again, thing. Again, if you don't, if you, if you don't have bodies and there's too many things going on, like, you know, they got a car accident and a car theft going on, you're going to go with a car accident because there's probably a, an injury there. So again, it's boots on the ground. Okay. And that's, it's, it's intelligence. That is certainly a part of the solution. Yeah. I'm not, I'm and not, I think penalty is another part, Scott. I really do agree cannot, with what you're saying. But you no, cannot treat it. Like, okay, we've arrested this yeah. person now you and can't now catch and release. we're not going to do anything about it or we're not no, going to take it seriously. It's got to be both. It's got to be what you're talking about and there are serious consequences. I, I really believe, and, I, and you know what, again, I'm fine to have this debate with anybody because I know some people disagree vigorously. Mm -hmm. I absolutely believe that a lack of consequences is a huge problem. It's a lack of, it's a problem with a lot of kids, with their parents well, now, the gun with stuff, schools, the gun stuff. with Scott, uh, right the gun all the way stuff. up. 12 to 17 year olds, the, the gun crimes up seven, 9% uh, since 2021, the biggest increase, 12 to 17 year olds. Yep. How frightening is that? Well, go, ask, ask almost any teacher in Ontario and say, if mm. a kid is misbehaving in class, what are teachers allowed to do now? And the answer yeah. is very, very little. Well, it, it's, these are incremental things, but it starts with stuff like that. If you believe that no one is ever going to make, call you and make you have a consequence for your behavior, then the next step and the next step and the next step and all the way up with all these increments, nobody does anything that makes you believe there's a cost to your behavior. I really believe that. 
All right, Scott Radley, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. The discussion continues. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one from Rick on the current attention to crime by the federal government. Scott, keep hammering away at these federal twits. If they weren't tanking in the polls, we wouldn't even get chatter about crime from them. Rick, keep right except the past.